Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Wrapping the data in the right story can carry your message forward. You get the story right. Not only will people listen to you, people will retell your story, which is what you really want. You want your story, your message to go viral. This week's guest, Tom Kelly, along with his brother, David, are the sort of brains behind an extraordinary creative firm called IDEO. And they're known for having really not just created amazing relationships, amazing products, services, and creative ideas for their clients, but for changing the way that we think about the process of creation, the process of taking things from problem to idea to solutions to products, businesses, services, things in the world. They've sort of developed a language and approach to birthing creativity that flowed out into the world and became sort of labeled design thinking. And they talk about this. Tom writes about it and the process, the stories behind it, in a really fantastic book called Creative Confidence, we also dive into how that book actually ended up getting written. After working with his brother for many years, there was a moment of reckoning that made them basically say, we need to do this, we need to do it together, and we need to do it now. I'm so excited to share this conversation with IDEO's Tom Kelly. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. I have a lot of curiosities about you and about what you do in the world and about what you're building. Do you have a recollection for when this sort of like first seed of deep curiosity mm-hmm. around creativity, innovation, all these sure. things start to bud? Yeah, it's not so traceable to our childhood. If you, if you try to make a link between our current life and creative confidence and, the, and our childhood, it's mainly that we just had lots of room to play, mm. right? It, it's the opposite of the kind of over-parenting that you, you have today. It was mm. like it was okay to do stuff. Right? It was okay to try to weld two bicycles together. It was okay <laughs> to take the piano apart. It was okay to try to fix the home stereo and, and fail and, and, and things like that. And so it wasn't so much that our parents were trying to specifically instill creativity so much as it, it, we were free to experiment. And, and I really deeply believe that experimentation is a part of how we learn and explore and we figure out, you know, what it is that we like to do and what, yeah. what, we're, what we're good at and, and things like that. So, uh, yes, we had lots of room for that. In our yeah. Childhood. Yeah. It's amazing that you say that. Cause I, um, I think I'm about 10 years your junior and 
I grew up outside of New York City in a small town, and I was the kid who on a Sunday, you know, I would get my dad to drive me to the, the town junkyard, basically, mm-hmm. find parts of bicycles. It'd, like, mm-hmm. trigger that thing. And I would come back and duct tape them together to make a Franken bike until we, like, drove it over enough rocks that it fell apart. Mm-hmm. It, it does seem like, and I'm a parent now mm-hmm. of a teenager, it does seem like a lot of that, it, it, we're so interested in protection. Yes. You know, which has its role, but at the same time, what are we taking away? Yeah, uh, you know, part of it gets back to fear of failure. And so if you're really afraid of failure or the consequences of failure, then that locks you up, right? And so in our childhood, nobody seemed to worry about anything. You know, I'm not sure seatbelts existed, but I know no one I know ever used them and things like that. And so as a parent today, it's like... Danger, danger. I don't, you know, I, I, I think seatbelts are very prudent and, right. and we should all use them. But in our wanting to keep everything safe is the thing that you can't, you know, make any mistakes along the way. And, mm. and we, we have to learn mistakes, you know. And, of course, you, you don't want to give up safety. But metaphorically, if you decide that you want to be a great skier, you want to be an Olympic skier, nah. right? And if you say to yourself, I want to be an Olympic skier and I never want to fall down, you're destined never to be even a medium skier if you pursue a course of training that makes it so you never once, you know, fall on your butt on the snow. Because that falling, the, the, the thing you did right before falling, usually, is the learning. It's, the, it's part of the learning process. And so, so, I mean, so what is it, do you think, that has, has led to this shift? You know, what are we afraid of that we keep, we keep jumping in and saying, no, 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 you know, like, stop here? Well, uh, and the the parenting thing it's too complicated to well, dive I, into I think but if you just today, you know, if you just, just look at it uh, you know in a kind of a company setting if if I believe that in my career I'm never allowed to make the tiniest failure I'm never allowed to be wrong once in front of my boss or in front of my colleagues uh, it's hopeless right and so we have to set up a culture for ourselves and for the people we work with we have to set up a culture that says hey we, we try stuff all the time and not all of it's going to work. Mm. And what I found is if you set it up in advance and say, hey, boss, I'd like to try the following experiment, right? It's an experiment from the beginning. And then, you know, if it doesn't quite work out, it's like, yep, yep, uh, that one didn't work. Let's try another one, right? As opposed to, hey, boss, I got the best idea ever, right? Where you're like fully committed to it. It's not an experiment. It's like your, your right. career is now tied up with it. And so I think if we... If we, even as CEOs, you know, the, the, when they're trying to make change in a company, and I've witnessed this firsthand, when a CEO wants to make change, even then it's good to characterize it as, a, as an experiment because people will play along with the experiment. And, and the, the, the experiment that didn't work out, that's not necessarily, you know, damaging to your career or your brand at all. Yeah. No, it's, and it's fascinating, too. And it's interesting, as you're talking about that, and I wasn't planning on going this direction, but it's just... It just pops so strongly into my head. You know, we're, we're recording this at a time where Tony Shea and Zappos is sort of like very publicly involved in this massive, massive and you know, profound um, and fairly radical shift in culture. Right. With a, with a culture that was really very well defined before mm-hmm. that. You know, mm-hmm. what, like it or hate it, it, you knew what you were coming into. Mm-hmm. And it seems like such a stark contrast to what you're talking about because, you know, they basically came out and said, okay, we're going all in 100%. This is the change that we're making. If you're with us, stay. Mm-hmm. If you're not, you know, we're, we're happy to take care of you and bless you on. And, right. you know, a, a large percentage of people left. So it was almost like the exact opposite approach. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, he's, he's got a very strong sense of mission. And if it works for him, great. Yeah. And for the rest of us kind of regular people, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, what I found is the, the experimentation approach works. I, I'm really good friends with uh, Jim Hackett, who's a former CEO of Steelcase. Mm-hmm. And Jim, many years ago now, went to his senior management team and said, hey, you know, we're the make- biggest maker of system furniture in the world, a.k.a. cubicles, right? And um, he said, uh, and yet we, back then, we, he, he was saying, we, the senior executives of this company, we all live in wood-paneled offices with doors mm-hmm. that close, and you got acoustic privacy. And so he, what he said to me is, what I could have done next is taken the big change approach, you know, old way, new way. And right. he says... 
big change is scary to people, especially big change about space. And he says, so I, as CEO, it's within my authority to do this, right? He says, I could have proposed big change. Uh, you know, blow up your old office. You're going you're gonna to live in this, you know, this open space. He said, I had had one by one every single one of my executives in my office explaining why, ooh, maybe somebody else could do this, but they couldn't, right? He said, instead of big change, he did a little experiment. And he said to him, I propose the following experiment. And what he, what he said to them was he would keep their office intact for the moment, but he said, I want you to join me. So he's in on it too. He's not, you know, standing on high dictating. Right. He's joining. I want you to join me in the open air leadership community, he called it. And so he branded it, which mm -hmm. always helps. He says, and I, wanna, I want us to try this for six months. He says, all I want you to do is give it an honest try for six months. And then, I think an important part of the whole process, he says, and my promise to you, right? Jim's this guy of deep, deep integrity. Everybody takes him at his word. He says, my promise to you is that six months from now, stuff that is not working, we will definitely address. He never, by the way, said, and you get to go back to your old office. Mm -hmm. But he promised them that the stuff that wasn't working, they would, they would address. And they did do some fine-tuning. But... 20 years later, those execs, their offices, old offices long gone, 20 years later, those execs are all still in that open-air leadership community, mm -hmm. right? And so he made big change, but he did it with a little experiment. And so I think when you propose the little experiment, in that case, you know, he was only asked for six months. He was asking them to give an honest drive. He was promising to, you know, do course corrections. Who, who could resist that one, right? And by the way, zero... Zero people came into his office telling him why it was bad for them. You know, mm. he, he made it work, right? And, you know, it, it, they don't always work out the first time like that. But I, I just, from Jim and other people I've seen do this, I feel like the, the experience, like, join me in this experiment, I think is, can be really powerful for people with authority, like the CEO Steelcase, and for people without authority, the bottom of the you know, the, the hierarchy saying, hey, let's try this experiment. Yeah. Either one works to me. Uh, so how much of it working in that case, or, and probably across the board, do you think is designing it as an experiment? So uh -huh. let's just try this. Yes. But at the same time, I mean, what he did was he stepped into a place of personal vulnerability. Right. You know, which, is, which really annoys people to you. Yes. Um, if he said... I want you guys to try this yes. for, for six yes. months. And he didn't step into that place and say, you know, like, I, A, I don't know, and I'm not there with you. Yes. Totally different experiment. Yes, I, 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 I spent some time a while back with a CEO of a company I shall not name. And he, <laughs> um, he, had, he had a factory. He had, you know, a lot of hourly employees, you know, uh, building something. And um, he, uh, as a big motivational thing one day, he closed down the factory and they had this day of talking about the future of the company. Mm. And the theme of the whole thing was get on the bus, right? And so the, um, he shut down the factory. They brought these yellow school buses in. They went from the factory in the morning out to this, this event space where they had the day-long, you know, pep, pep rally, basically, mm. for the future of the company. And he thought, big success. And he, you know, he, he went home that night and told his wife how well it went and stuff like that. Next day, he still hasn't even reached his desk yet. And one of his young employees comes up and says, boss, that was a great day yesterday. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're all, we all support you. We're all on the bus. He says, but um, listen, and he's got this nervous look on his, listen, um, boss, I just wanted to say that, you know, at the end of the day, when we got all back, got back on the yellow school bus, and then you got into your Mercedes and drove <laughs> drove away. He said, I, I just, I, it just didn't feel that good. And he's like, no, duh. You know, and afterwards, it was dead obvious to him, but he, he, that idea had never crossed his mind. Yeah. And so, yes, it helps a lot if you as the leader or, or you as the, the person proposing the experiment, if you're, if you're prepared to, you know, go all in, you're, you're prepared to do the experiment along with others. Yeah. Of course, that, that, as you say, vulnerability is better. Yeah, and no doubt. And I think also, um, you know, part of the vulnerability is it seems like from those two examples is really it's you saying, I'm the leader, but I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work or not. I right. legitimately don't know, and I value your input in the process, which gives people permission to do the same thing. Right. Well, so, and 
And that's the, really the good news for leaders is you don't have to know, right? Like people ask me all the time about what's IDEO's strategy for the future. And, and you know, our strategy is we're going to do more experiments more quickly than others do. And mm. we're going we're gonna to learn from the experiments. We're going to listen to what happens to those experiments, right? So that, so that we do actually capture the learning when things don't go wrong or when, when they do. And so that's a pretty good strategy if you're, if you're nimble enough to respond when, when you learn from things. And so we, in the history of the firm, we've had, we've had dozens of failures, right? But we move away from the failure. We move toward the successes. And if you, if you take enough shots on goal, you can, uh, you know, you can, you can win. So in, in the case of audio, is the culture that allows that deliberate from the beginning, or did was that something that you grew into over time? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, Jim Collins has the idea of uh, built to last versus good to great. Yeah. And so it is easier, I would be the first to acknowledge, it is easier to start from the beginning with these principles in mind. And, and we certainly did, right? The the idea of, of experimentation, the idea of, of, you know, what we would call, then called need finding, which was really now what we call design thinking, right. which is... Don't even always go straight into problem solving. Find find a new problem. You know, find the need yeah. that you want to address with your solutions. And so, uh, yes, we, and we we did. We we had that from the beginning. So you you brought up the term design thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, so for those not in the know about sure. what this is, deconstruct this a little bit. Sure. So um, design thinking uh, is something that we've practiced for decades at IDEO, but I think the, the term has just emerged in the last 10 years or so. And, and I, I believe we at least arrived at this term independently. I don't know if, if uh, you know, we're not claiming ownership on it, but we, we articulated the, you know, the word a, a decade or uh, the expression of a decade or so ago to describe the mindset that a designer uses in solving a problem. Right. And, and the idea of design thinking is to is that it's a it's a mindset that goes beyond, you know, a physical object, designing a product or a service or something like that, that you can use design thinking to apply to really the most complex problems in the world. Right. And so there are many elements of that. But I, I would say some key themes in in design thinking approaches is one, you start with empathy. Right. You, you look at the humans around you. And this is true in the business to business world as well as the business to consumer. It also, by the way, applies in the nonprofit world. Right. And so you look at what are the human needs we're trying to address? Who's who's got a problem with the status quo? Where you know, where do people have insecurity? Where do people get lost? You know, what are the problems that maybe they have that they haven't even articulated? Yet, you know, you'd call those the latent needs, right? And so, the one element is that starting with empathy. Another element is the one we were talking about, which is experimentation—the a, a philosophy that says you learn you learn by enlightened trial and error. And if we're going to learn by enlightened trial and error, we're going to do lots of experiments, and we're going to try to do those experiments as quickly and as cheaply as possible because we can't slow the whole process down for more experimentation. We have to do it with a a rapid cycle, right? So there's the empathy, there's the experimentation. Mm -hmm. And then one element of it is once you've found something that you deeply believe in as a solution, then there's the storytelling aspect, which is to wrap your idea, your data, your, you know, the, 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 the message in a story because, and it took us a long time to figure this out actually, but Data doesn't speak for itself very well. You know, we were very technically based in the early origins of the firm. It was all engineers, you know, when I joined. And we thought that stories were what you use when you didn't have data, you know, otherwise known as bull, right? But um, now we believe that since the data doesn't speak for itself, wrapping the data in the right story can carry your message forward. You get the story right. Not only will people listen to you, people will retell your story, which is what you really want. Yeah. You want your story, your message to go viral. I, and, I, and I love that. So, you know, the, the three big things that you talked about were empathy, experimentation, and story. Right. And I know you, you, we can deconstruct a little bit sure. more, but I think those are three sort of like big right. buckets to explore a little bit. Sure. You talked a bit about the experimentation. Empathy is fascinating to me. So I've yeah, yeah, grown a, a few of my own small businesses, but I also spent a lot of time training as a copywriter. Right. And one of the things that you learn early on is you write to one person. Right. You know, and, and you can't write to one person mm-hmm. until you really get into their life yes. and their head yes. and, like, everything about yes. them. And it was funny. There was a moment where, for me, I realized I stopped creating business plans and started writing copy. Right. Because I wanted to know before I did anything, right. can I really understand on a single individual level what's going on? Right. 
And, yes. and it was a really powerful moment. And, and, and what I realized when I started to become exposed to design thinking is that's, that's sort of like part of the process of yes. deepening into empathy. Right. And, you know, a place where this really comes in handy is for the big companies to try to serve everybody. Mm. You know, if you're the phone company, if you're, you know, whatever, the, you, you, you serve so much of humanity that you start to, it all becomes a blur. Yeah. And, you know, our point of view is that, you know, you may serve a billion people and those billion people are made up of the groups. Right. And so, you know, we're currently redesigning the, the voting system for the county of Los Angeles. I think it's the largest voting county or largest number of registered voters or something in America. And um, it's it's everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, what we've tried to work on is the idea that the, everybody is these component parts. And let's think about let's think about the people who most need our help. You know, the people with limited abilities, the people with sight impairment, the people who have English as second language. And let's see if we can't uh, design an experience that is great for them and in making it great for them is great for the others around them as well, right? And so uh, breaking the this kind of universe of people down into component parts really we found to be helpful to to develop empathy. Our, our clients are all interested in big data, right? And big data, you know, that really informs decision-making, but you start to like lose track of the fact that these are humans yeah. underneath the data. And so we have something we call hybrid insights, which is taking the big da- data, but then personifying it. You know, just taking a slice of the data and say, you know what this is like? This is like Rebecca. Let me tell you about Rebecca. And Rebecca's not a stereotype. You know, she's not the, you know, double income, no kids. She's not the single mom, whatever. She, you know, Rebecca's got a whole personality. And your customers, you know, the, or the constituents or whoever it is you care about, they have whole personalities. And so when you break them down into individual groups or, you know, ultimately it's individuals, then it's much easier for you as a decision maker to say, oh, I got to... I got to worry about Rebecca. Let's make something Rebecca would use. It so brings the needs to life as opposed to, I got this segment of, you know, 48% of our people have never used this product before. I, I can't, I can't design for 48%, right. but yeah. I can design for Rebecca. Yeah. And, you know, and then there's a lot of Rebecca's. There's, you know, people that represent different elements. But so we think hybrid insights is a way to take the big data, but humanize it. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you a question. I'm really curious about your your approach to this then. So a question that comes to me fairly often is, you know, so you'll have a couple of different types of founders or entrepreneurs. Some are product oriented, mm-hmm. some are service oriented. Right. You know, like I either want to build or I want to serve. And sometimes there's a crossover, but very often. Right. And a lot of founders, a lot of early stage people are really product oriented right. and they're in search of the avatar. They're in search of the best possible Rebecca to build right. this on. Right. And they look at their product, they look at their company, their brand, and they're like, well, this can fix everything for everybody. And 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 then they'll look and, you know, okay, drill it down. Like, okay, I have 100 people. How do I choose the one out of the, sli- out of the universe of people that I know this could profoundly impact? How do, if, I, if my best option is to start out by speaking to one, how, how do I figure that out? Yeah, it's not even so much that we're targeting one. We're 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 looking at a series of individuals to try to get inspiration. Mm-hmm. And so the experiment is really it's not so much I'm designing for Rebecca, but I got an idea from Rebecca that I want to I want to build into our next experiment and see mm-hmm. if people besides Rebecca like it. You know, we we did a we did a product or a project uh, several years ago on a Bank of America. And it was aimed at a specific target market. I think it was baby boomer women. And we studied them. And we sat in their homes. And we had them balance their checkbook. It was actually this group of people we were trying to learn from, you know, was still using their paper checkbooks at, at the time. And we learned a lot from those baby boomer women. And we designed something with them in mind. But we didn't know it was going to be successful. But we, our client, uh, Bank of America, put it out on the market. And the product was called Keep the Change. It was a way that you uh, use a, a B of A debit card. And every time you use a debit card, it would round up to the nearest mm, dollar. And, the, and then what was left over would go in your savings account. Right. And so it both, for the baby boomer women, it both... Gave them simplicity in their lives because now they have a bank statement that is all whole numbers, right? right? Because it's rounded up, right? And every time you use that card, you had this this kind of heartwarming feeling. Every time I use this card, I am saving towards my retirement, right? And 
that turned out to really resonate with Baby Boomer Women and about a million other <laughs> other people right. who signed up for it. But so we did get the inspiration from them, but it was certainly our hope that getting it right for them right, would, would expand, be would more expand. robust. You yeah. know, in the history of of innovation, this is not a design from IDEO, Procter & Gamble, this is like 20 years ago, completely redesigned their liquid Tide bottle, and they redesigned it for arthritic hands. You know, the, the elderly people were having trouble opening up that little tiny cap on the top, oh, and they made their cap the about like four ah. inches in diameter. It also, you know, serves a measuring cup and stuff yeah. like that, but the, the, the inspiration for that was arthritic hands. And guess what? Everybody liked that cap. Yeah. They have never gone back. Everybody, you know, and then it's been copied as well. It's better for everybody. It's like, uh, you know, the OXO good grips yeah. uh, kind of thing. Right, and now that's almost like a, hip, a hipster tool. Yeah, <laughs> which exactly. Was, yeah. It, it is amazing. Um, I don't want to forget to circle back to sort of like that other really big piece, which mm-hmm. is storytelling. Yes. And it was interesting. A couple of years ago, I had the chance to sit down with a guy named Robert McKee, uh-huh. who teaches these yes. legendary He's stories. In fact, yeah. there was that movie about yeah, it. Exactly. Um, yeah. What's he called again? Uh, it starts with an A with Nick Cage. Um, yes. Anyway, and we got onto this topic of, you know, I was asking him, I said, you know, he was he's very well known in the fiction and yes. in the and film And his book world. is actually called Story, right, I think. Right, called Story. Yes. He's uh-huh. like the story guy. Yes. And I, and I asked, I said, you know, have you done work with this in the context of companies? Yes. And 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 he said, yeah. And he, and he said something with, which fascinated me, which was that the interesting thing is that if you get up on a stage or if you're in a room pitching an idea, uh-huh. you know, and you use story versus slides versus yes. data, he's like, the thing with data is that somebody who, who comes in a defensive posture mm-hmm. and doesn't want to accept the idea, they can sit there and they can go data point by data point in your presentation and formulate the argument against it. Mm-hmm. If you come into the same room... Yes. And you just tell a story. They don't yes. have those data yeah. points. And somehow it sneaks under the it's radar. It's almost like not a fair fight at yeah, that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you see it all the time in business. You'll go in and, see, you know, the people want to talk about the feature set. Well, we've got X. We've got yeah. Y. We've got Z, you know. And um, what we've seen, and we've seen a lot, people will say, let me tell you a story about a woman named Maria in Kansas City who, you know, was using our product, but then, you know, like, decided that she yeah. didn't love us. You know, and it's like, and as you say, it's hard to argue with, you, you know, it's a, it's a factual story. You want to get it as accurate as possible. You want to, you want to frame it in a way that it influences behavior, right? And so we actually try to combine storytelling with behavioral economics, you know, the social right. science of behavior change. It can be quite powerful. Uh, for business people, one of the problems with storytelling is they know too much. They want to tell you all the exceptions and all the details and <laughs> the latest feature and stuff like that. Whereas if you can find a way to distill it down, it can be great. I didn't know Steve Jobs well during his lifetime, but my brother was quite close to him, and, and you know, my brother David, who's the founder of IDEO. And, and uh, Steve was, of course, masterful at this storytelling. And there's a, you know, you can probably think of a dozen stories yourself, stories about Steve's storytelling, but one that comes to mind for me is back, if you can remember, before the original Apple iPod, this was, you know, before um, iTunes came out, there were these other, they were called MP3 players, right, yeah. and there was one called the Rio, there was one, any other, a bunch of them, and they were right. all talking about compression rates and digital music and all this kind of stuff, and it's like, do I need one of these? No, I don't, I don't think so. No. No, I don't. Not yet, at least. And then Steve stood up that year, and this is many years ago, at the Apple Worldwide Development Conference, and he held up an iPod, and he told basically a six-word story. He said, you know what this is? He said, a thousand songs in your pocket. And suddenly it's like, yes, I need that. <laughs> a thousand songs in my pocket. And me and everybody else, you know, in my neighborhood lined up at the Apple store to get a thousand songs in our pocket so it would be the soundtrack of our lives, mm. right? And so sometimes the story doesn't have to be long. You just have to, have to figure out. It goes back to empathy. What is the story that's going to resonate with my audience, with the individual or the group that I'm speaking to right now? Nah. Right, you get that story right, people will listen, and really, ideally, people retell the story. Yeah. So we're we're uh, recently worked with just this wonderful charismatic woman. Her name is Jane Park, and she's the CEO of a company called Julep. It's uh, among other things, it's uh, women's nail polish, right? And she's built her whole company on on social networking. But if you think about it, if you're going to rely on social networking, as many companies do, right? You, you're asking your customers, your best customers, they call them mavens, your best customers to tell 
their friends, in this case their girlfriends, stories about you. Well, you want to do that, you better give them a story to tell. Right, exactly. Right? So Jane came to us and said, hey, you know, what can we do that, that you know, that has a great story that we, you know, like that uh, something that our customers are really going to want. And so we did, as we always, we start with empathy and we, we watch women polish their nails at home, right? And... Um, uh, it's so obvious afterwards. Every woman in America will laugh when you say, well, yeah, everyone knows that, which is when you're using your dominant hand, it's very easy to put the nail on the, on the other hand. But as soon as you switch to your non-dominant hand, it gets really hard. And that barrier alone sends some women to the salon, right? Uh -huh. Because that's really hard. And so then we, we experimented. We made over 100 prototypes different ways you could make that easier with the non-dominant hand. And eventually we discover this thing, which also is obvious after you discover it, which is all tools, I mean really, all tools that require dexterity are long. Pencils are long, scalpels are long, mm. whatever. And meanwhile, we got this little tiny dinky cap on a bottle, on the nail polish bottle, and you're holding that with just your two fingers between your thumb and your forefinger. This is not dexterous, right? And so we created, uh, you know, with, with the help of the folks at Julep, this thing, it's called plie, and it's really long. And by the way, it articulates a little bit. I actually have one in my briefcase, but I don't have it right here. And so that you can, with your non-dominant hand, you can hold it and rest it on, you know, the, the, the space between your thumb and your forefinger. Or you can turn it. It kind of twists and articulates, and you can use all of your fingers in a, you know, in a kind of a sideways mm. motion. So first we say nail polish is harder with the non-dominant hand, and it's like everybody's with you on that. And then we talk about you know, how, how uh, tools require dexterity or long. And it's like, that's an easy story to tell. And so Jane and Julep tell it to their mavens, and then their mavens tell it to everybody they know. And next thing they know, this product is called plie that kind of magnetically attaches to the top of all yeah. of their, their bottles. So it's second-order storytelling, right? It's, it's creating a story. And this, we didn't create the story from scratch. You know, you have to figure out what works. The right. story has to have authenticity. You create a story. You basically gift it to others so that they have the chance to tell that story again. Yeah, um, and it's beautiful. Uh, that, are you familiar with, with um, Jonah Berger's work on Contagion? Um, he's he's, he's uh, Wharton, I think, actually. He, he basically he analyzed... Uh, something like thousands of the most emailed articles from the New York Times oh. to try and find commonalities. And mm -hmm. came up with six different elements. And two of them tie so closely into what you're talking about. One is just story. Mm -hmm. People share stories like right. crazy. One of the, the sub-drivers, what he found, was that they share it because they want it. It's about social currency. Right. They want credit for being the person sure. who found the cool story or the right. cool thing behind the story. And they want, you know, it's it's like that gives them that sense of belonging and position in the tribe. Right. Sure. Um, well, so in really fact, powerful. you know, at, at Julep, they call them mavens. You know, that's what a yeah. maven is. It's the person you seek out. Like, hey, I'm, I, yeah. I, I'm bu buying a new uh, pair of slacks. You know, like, w what color is good this year? That The person who knows the answer to that question has always been called a maven, right? Mm -hmm. And so they've just adopted that term to say, you're going to be the experts among your community. Yeah. And so it is a, it is kind of a gift if, if uh, you know, if you as a company or you as an individual can empower other people to, to play that role, that's great. Yeah. And they will hopefully love you for it. That, uh, hopefully. So, and what occurs to me also, you know, zooming the lens out, and this is something, the more I've sort of explored design thinking and looked at the process, and so part of my bigger exploration is how do you live a good life? And mm -hmm. we'll kind of circle yes. around to that at the end. But but this process, when I look at the the sort of like the, the overarching frame of design thinking is fascinating for business, mm -hmm. but universally applicable to pretty much life. Sure. You know, Absolutely. this is solving the things. You know, it gives you a process to move right. you from one place from, from A to B in a really yes. powerful way. Yeah. Yeah. I um so I have these three books and you know the, the, the first two are quite successful, but this third one's totally different. I mean, because people reach out to me and tell me about their life, right? And they're not afraid to use the word change my life and stuff like that. So I've uh, hundreds of these, but uh, mm -hmm. the one that stands out in my mind is I was in Iceland. I had, a, had the best-selling book in Iceland for a while last year <laughs> because if you go there, you know, it's a tiny country. It's, it's easy, <laughs> you know, if you put a little effort into it, you could, you too could have the bestseller in Iceland for sure. Anyhow, we're there to launch the book and uh, go out to dinner that night with this group of people, including the, the translator of the book. 
And uh, I got talking about, you know, giving, I gave like half a dozen examples of cool emails I've gotten from people, you know, in response to the book. And he says, to the table at large, he says, yeah, yeah, that's fine. He said, but um, he says, I know you've gotten a nice message from a lot of people, but he says, I don't think anyone in the world is going to get more value from this book than my 14-year-old son. And I said, really? (laughs) I said, I find that hard to believe. I said, first of all, the book came out today. You're not saying your 14-year-old son has read it already, have you? No, no. He says, I read it. It's like, okay. Mm. I said, I hope you read it. He says, well, let me tell you my story, right? And his story was not about business or commerce or, you know, whatever. It was about life, right? He says, I'm halfway through your Creative Confidence book. And my son comes to me and says, Dad, I'd, I'd really like to have a new computer. I'd like to have a MacBook Pro. And he says, I told my son, I'm sorry, we just can't afford a computer right now. And he said, that would have been the end of the conversation, except he says, I'm translating a book called <laughs> Creative Confidence. So he said, I said to my son, let's sit down with this. Let's brainstorm a little bit. He says, let's try to answer the question, how might we make it so that you could earn your own money? You could buy your own computer. He says, we talked about a bunch of ideas, but his son said to him, hey, dad, there's that lawnmower kind of thing in the basement. He said, um... Maybe I could fix that up, and then I could go door to door and, you know, work in people's yards. And he, he said, uh, again, he would have said no. His son's 14, didn't know anything about, you know, internal combustion engines and stuff like that. But he says, uh, creative confidence. <laughs> he said, so, he said, I said to my son, you know, just stay away from the, you know, the blade. I want you to do this safely, but you give it a try, right? He doesn't think anything more about it. You know, that's going to be the end of the conversation. But a few days later, he hears that motor spin to life in the basement. His son is somehow, he figures YouTube, he's not sure, figure out how to fix this thing. And he says, and then my son became a lawn mowing machine, went from door to door to door. (laughs) He said, your book just came out today. He said, but my son already has his computer, right? And so he tells this story to the whole table. And I thought, what a sweet story. But that wasn't the story. The story was the one, the follow-up. We're going away out, and there's a guy, I don't even know his name. I'm sure I could look it up. But, you know, we're getting up from the table in Reykjavik, Iceland. I'm thinking, okay, I'm never going to see this group of people again in the rest of my life, right? He comes over to my wife and I, and he says, you know, he said, I always read about those inspirational parents. But he said, just seemed too hard. He said, I, 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 never, had the, I never had the material. I never had the content for it. He says, I got the content now. He says, I'm going to be one of those parents, Right, and so it wasn't about business, wasn't about commerce, was it? It was about life, and I thought, wow, what a you know, how great that I was able to help make that happen in his life. But how how great also that I got the chance to hear that you know mm. from him to share his story back with me. Yeah. And so yeah, as you say, it's really I mean, at its best, it's about life. Yeah, and and I which is I mean, those stories are beautiful, and it's it also it's so powerful in the context of the story that you tell about how the book actually even came about, which, right. you know, really was, sure. you know, the seed of, I guess, you know, like it's a very scary time sure. know, in your brother's life. Yeah, I was not walking around thinking that I had another book yeah. <laughs> coming in, in my life. But uh, what happened was in 2007, uh, early in the year 2007, my brother got diagnosed with cancer. It was throat cancer. It was pretty serious. Um they um, gave him a 40% chance of, of surviving it. You know, it's a five-year survival rate. And, and um, you know, when your doctor gives you a 40% chance of surviving, you, you don't even think about the 40. You think about the 60, right? You know, he's had a less than 50% chance of, of surviving it. And so we just lived in the present. I spent most of that year by my brother's side. And we, you know, had this kind of tacit agreement not to talk about the future. We're just going to live for now. Right. But then, you know, luckily and with some super great um, doctoring uh, at the Stanford Hospital, uh, my brother went through the whole regime, you know, chemo and radiation and surgery. And um, toward the end of that year, he emerged. Right. And and, uh, you know, here we are eight years later and my brother's fine. But as he emerged from the cancer journey, we thought for the first time, like, hey, we could we could actually make plans. What do you want to do? Right, and so uh, we made two promises to each other. The first promise is that we would take a trip somewhere in the world together because we actually hadn't, other than you know business trips, uh, we hadn't done a leisure trip together ever. Well, not since we were twelve years old. Mm. So the first promise was we'd do a trip, but the second promise is we'd do some sort of project together. You know, basically an excuse to hang around together because we're not super good at just hanging out in general. 
And so that project, and he was like, what should we do? And I said, well, I know how to do a book. Should we do a book? Oh, what should the book be about? And so uh, that, that was the genesis of this book about creative confidence that is based both on our work at IDEO and on David's work at the D School at Stanford. Yeah, which has now rippled out. And it's a wonderful book. And we'll certainly link to that in the show notes. Um, my, my book is like so dog-eared and marked mm-hmm. up that at some point I just stopped because uh-huh. I was like, it doesn't make sense to dog-ear every yeah, page yeah. in the book. How did that moment change? Well, let me not make any assumptions. Yeah. Did moving through that period with David change the the way that you made decisions moving forward? Sure. I mean, you it definitely gets you perspective. I mean, yeah. you, you know, like you have this, you know, one, you have the sense that life is finite, Right. And uh, wow, better, uh, you know, better enjoy it. There was that Warren Zevon's famous quote, which is enjoy every sandwich. Right. Like the most mundane things. And you can if you if you if you're conscious of it, you can do that. You can enjoy like this moment. Like and I think this uh, very, very frequently, I would say many times a week, I think, how lucky am I to be right here, right now, you know, doing this 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 fun thing. Right. And so there's that. Um, but then there's also the sense of, you know, you better have a purpose, right? Like, if life is finite, what do you want to do? You know, my brother and I are both over 50. I'll <laughs> leave it at that. Um, so, you know, playing on the on the back nine of life, right? Well, you know, if, if you, life is finite and, you know, your career, therefore, is finite too, what do you want to do with the time left? And so both of us really are on this journey and it's slightly, we're approaching in slightly different ways of, you know, how might we nurture the creative confidence of the 75% of people on earth, apparently, who don't feel like they have a chance to live up to their creative best. We, we uh, tapped into it. There's a Adobe survey called State of Create, where they ask 5,000 people this question, and only 25% said they have a chance to live up to their creative best. And it's like, okay, leaders, you know, influencers of the world, how are we going to lock the other 75%? Because that is an untapped resource, you know. We live in a world of scarce resources of all kinds, right, including natural resources, including, you know, budget, you know, time, all that. So in that, in a resource-constrained environment, really shame on us if we don't take advantage or tap into this untapped resource of the creative potential of people around us. Mm. So is that really your sort of uh, your your burning question these days? Uh, that's that's very high on my list, right? And so that's that drove the book. I speak a lot about the book. I was in thirteen countries last year, mm. talking about creative confidence. I try to mentor people where I can in different you know association with a, a few academic programs and things like that. And so uh, yeah, seems a seems a worthy goal. Uh, so, uh, yeah. It's on, on the one hand, it's so powerful. And, and to think that, you know, on the other hand, it's really, it's almost sad to think that, you know, such a vast percentage of the population feels so incapable of tapping right. what they feel, you know, they're capable of. Right. And when you talk to them, you know, sometimes it's a constraint. You know, it's like, well, my boss doesn't want to hear that yeah, from right. me. Right. And, you know, so sometimes it's not, they don't feel like it's in them. They feel like it's situational. Mm. Right. And so I get to speak to those bosses and I say, hey, look, tap into this. We're not saying all their ideas are good, by the way. We want to tap into that ability so that we can bring those ideas out and then judge them or and yeah. then build on them or and then prototype them. Right. So it's not like if uh, all of our employees told us all of their ideas every day, we're going to implement them all. We're not. But, you know, it gets back to that old Linus uh, Pauling quote, you know, won the Nobel Prize twice. And he said, if you want a good idea, start with a lot of ideas. Mm. And I think it's fair to say that across the board in society, we could use some good ideas and therefore we could use, you know, some some fresh ideas on which to to draw. Yeah. I'm reminded of a study that came out of UPenn. Mm-hmm. I want to say about five years ago, uh-huh. um, that looked at some large enterprises and um, they were curious about, you know, innovation-driven enterprises. They were curious about whether um, ideas generated by teams that were getting killed by the team leader were actually good ideas. Yes. 
And what they found was that when they sort of like, so they would analyze it, they would let the process happen. Then they would have, you know, a group of five independent people analyze the true value of the creative. And um, what they found was that a huge percentage of really good ideas that were being called for by the team leader, the team leader would then, A, say they're too risky or not good enough, and they would kill them. And they start to ask a question. And the thing that was really distressing was that the team leader didn't even know really that they were doing something, that they were killing all the good ideas right. that they were asking for. Right. So they're trying to figure out the psychology of it. And their best guess was that in acknowledging the validity of a really good, creative, innovative idea, which would necessarily put you into a place of uncertainty, right. you basically adopt it as your own. And you, so you allocate, you know, like resource towards yes. it. And a lot of leaders had sort of like come to a place where you feel comfortable, you know, like, right. and you don't want to step back into the abyss on behalf of somebody else's ideas, let alone your own. So you just pretend that it's not a good idea. So you don't have to deal with it. Right. Well, and I really encourage leaders to get, you know, what they call a reverse mentor, somebody, you know, younger than you that sees, you know, gets access to, to new trends that are emerging that might not, if you're a senior leader, you might not see. And the reason I do that is there's a danger that the new idea, right? So let's say that the idea called digital photography inside of Kodak in the, in the year 1990, right? That the new idea is in fact a good idea for the world, even for the company, but maybe not a good idea for the leader who's playing gatekeeper on, on good ideas, right? And so if you're that leader, you got to keep yourself really well informed of things happening in the world. And I do that. I have two reverse mentors, but I encourage people to do it. And I've had lots of emails from people who say they do it. And, and if you're uh, responsible for that enterprise, you better have some form of marketplace for ideas, you know, using like an open innovation platform. We have our own for the world, uh, we call Open IDEO. But then inside of IDEO, we have an open innovation platform just to, to keep circulating ideas around. So that, you know, if you're in a leadership position, you don't just talk to the people who sit next to you. You know, we're global enterprise. We're spread all over the world. I want the, the smart young employee in Munich or Shanghai to be able to have their idea, you know, come across our desk too, right? And so we do that with a, an open innovation platform. We'll put a question out into across the company. It's like, well, what do you think, yeah. right? And so... You have to kind of systematically seek those out to get away from the the bias of the individual. Hmm. Yeah, and and again, my mind zooms the lens out. And I'm thinking, great concept for business and your career, your vocation, but great great concept for life. Too. Yes, I mean, like create this just on your own outside, you know, to help you make those really powerful sure. I mean, decisions. Yeah, you know, we all want to be yeah. refreshed and on top of things, yeah. and you know, uh, have some, you know, have some like currency in the moment. And so, no. I mean, there's, there's a million ways to do that, but one way that turns out to be really effective is to have somebody that you systematically seek out. You know, the same person over and over again. Uh, I've been working with one of my reverse mentors for more than a decade, and they just make me smarter. You know, mm. uh, they, you know, point out things like, hey, Tom, you should really look into that. And conversely, they'll say, I don't think you need to worry about that one, right? Which that's really valuable, releasing me from the obligation <laughs> of trying to figure out uh, you know, a, a new app or something like, no, I don't think that one's for you. That's great. That's yeah. just as useful as the, you better figure out Twitter, you know, or whatever yeah. the, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the thing that they want me to focus on. So yeah, no, I love very that. Very useful. So I want to be really respectful of your time. Um, so let's come full circle. So okay. maybe this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that term out to you to live a good life, yes. what does it mean to you? What comes up? Well, live a good life. I mean, a part of it is about appreciation. A part of it is about kind of enjoying what's been said in front of you, whether it's has to do with great wealth or or great interest or whatever. And, you know, just appreciating where you are now. Because I, I see, well, I, I know some really wealthy people in the Silicon Valley who don't seem to appreciate it. Like, and then um, another is to, to fall out of this, the kind of comparative thing, right? So in Creative Confidence, uh, you know, some people say, well, you know, I could never be Picasso or Mozart. And it's like, never mind Picasso, never mind Mozart, right? Could you could you paint at a level that, or, you know, express your art in a way that would be satisfying to you and people around you? Yes, you could. You'd have to practice a little bit, right? But um, to, so to, you know, embrace the ability to express oneself without worrying about, you know, that there's going to be somebody better. Like, hey, you know, unless you're, uh, unless you win the Olympic gold medal this year, there's always somebody better than you and that's okay, 
right? And so I think some of that is just kind of maintaining your perspective on things. And then, uh, you know, a, a part of how I feel like a contributor to a good life is just the kind of curiosity and thirst for thirst for learning is that that kind of renewal that happens when you when you are open to the new learning. I, I think in some people's lives they get to a certain point, as you say, in their career or just at an age or something. It's like where they kind of implicitly say, "I know all I ever need to know." Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you don't, right? And and this is how I think if you stay curious. You're, you know, it also keeps your mind sharp. You know, my dad is 90 years old. He's about to turn 91. Incredibly curious. You give him a magazine and he will look at every page. I, we were recently in Forbes magazine in Japan. And I swear to God, my dad, who doesn't speak a word of, you know, any language other than English, flipped through every page of this magazine exclusively in Japanese and asked us about a hundred questions. Who's this in this picture? What's that? You know, just like maintaining that curiosity really important to you know maintaining a good life you know into into your older age we have a we have a 90 year old designer at IDO we're really interested in how you maintain that you know a life you know, as you as you progress it through the, the the later chapters of life too yeah it's beautiful thank you okay yeah. great thanks so much for joining in this week's conversation you know If you've actually stayed till this point in the conversation, I'm guessing there's a pretty good bet that you've gotten something out of this episode, some some nugget, some idea. If that is right and you feel like sharing, then by all means, go ahead. We love when you share these conversations and get the word out. And if you wouldn't mind, I would so appreciate if you would just take a few seconds, jump onto iTunes or use your app, and just give us a quick rating or review. When you do that, it helps get the word out helps let more people know about the conversations we're hosting here, and it gives us all the ability to spread the word and make a bigger difference in more people's lives. As always, thank you so much for your kindness, your wisdom, and your attention. Wishing you a fantastic rest of the week. I'm Jonathan Field, signing off for Good Life Project. Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.